Take a look again with me at verse 8 and 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. While the scribes and the Pharisees were, were guilty of numerous, very wicked sins, errors, and blasphemies, two of their most terrible and grave of, of those sins are presented to us in the text at hand this morning. The first being teaching as doctrines the commands of men. You see that right there in verse 9. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, or in other words, the elevation of any extra-biblical man-made tradition, teaching, organization, or work to the same level or even to a higher level of authority in our lives as believers than God's word or command as given to us in Scripture. You see, for the Christian, and let me just say this, this is a non-negotiable. For the Christian, God's holy word, the Bible, is, as Jesus makes clear in our text this morning, the sole and the final authority for all matters of faith, life, and practice. And any church, any gathering, any assembly that would hope to be a God-honoring assembly or church, any professing Christian who would hope to be a God-honoring Christian must, capital M-U-S-T, must understand this. Scripture is our authority. And if you were to go online and you take a look at the doctrinal statements of God's faithful local churches, you will always note that in their doctrinal statement, when it comes to Scripture, the authority of Scripture is always made crystal clear. For example, when it comes to our own denomination, our own association, uh, our Articles of Faith and Doctrine, which we hold to, which are in our Policies and Procedures document, read this, read like this. We believe the Holy Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, as originally given by God, are divinely inspired, without error, entirely trustworthy, and constitute the only supreme authority in all matters of faith and teaching and behavior. But as we will see, the scribes and the Pharisees who come to Jesus on this day they don't come to Jesus bringing God's Word to bear in the ministry of Christ. They don't see God's Word as their supreme authority in faith and teaching and behavior. But instead, if you look at verse 2, they come to Jesus saying, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? You see that, right? Why do they break the tradition of the elders? And this is something that Jesus will, in the text this morning, severely rebuke them for and expose. The second error in 15 verses 8 and 9 is that this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In other words, they created and practiced and held to others to the observance of an externally focused works-based religion. The religious leaders in Israel had over the last 
five, six, seven centuries, developed a rather complicated system of works, observances, rituals, ceremonies, and they had multiplied meticulous laws and rules and held the common Jewish person to their standard of compliance, to their standard of following these self-made rules. And they held people to their standard of compliance and judged people as either sinners or righteous based on the people's conformity to those rules and those rituals. That's what verses 10 to 20 will speak of, and we'll look at that in greater detail next week. But as we come to Matthew 15, 1 to 9 this morning, I want to explore the first of these Pharisaical errors in greater detail. This idea of teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So you see, after the feeding of the 5,000, after walking on the water, Jesus and the disciples came to the region called Gennesaret. You see that in 1434. Where once again, Christ shows his compassion, and it is, his compassion is put on display as the people in the area, as they see Jesus come onto the shore, they all know, take note of him, and they run off, and they tell their families because they recognize him to come and to see him. And when they all come and see him, they implore him if they, that, to just touch the fringes of his garment. And the text tells us that as many as touched the fringes of his garments, they were made well. So you see, the compassionate concern in, uh, of Christ and the love for his people, or the love, his love for these people, his allowing these unclean, possibly unclean people to touch his garments, presents to us a stark contrast to the Pharisees that we are introduced to in chapter 15. In chapter 15, we see these Pharisees who did everything they could to keep people away from them, to keep people from coming near them. Heaven forbid that a, a common person would touch a Pharisee and perhaps cause them to contract some sort of uncleanness or defilement. As the Pharisees walked around, they walked around with their shoulders up, their pride puffed, and thought to themselves, how dare any common person touch a holy man like me? You see the difference, right? The Pharisees keep everyone away while Jesus calls everyone to him. Jesus didn't focus on the uncleanness of the crowds. Instead, he helped them. He healed them. He showed compassion for them. But the Pharisees couldn't see anything other than the uncleanness of the peoples. And as Jesus is healing these people at Gennesaret, it says, then, in chapter 15, verse 1, then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So it's around that time that some Pharisees from Jerusalem came to him. Now, it's one thing for the crowds to listen to and to witness Jesus debate with and correct and rebuke and put the local backwater Pharisees in their place. But when Jerusalem itself dispatches a squad of Pharisees and scribes to observe Jesus, now that's a whole different story. These are the big guns being called in. The Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem, these were the ones who were trained in the most prestigious rabbinical schools. These are the ones who lived in the same city as the temple of God itself. These are the real theologians making their way out to see Jesus. And why they came is up for discussion. Perhaps they heard about the massive crowds that are following Jesus around, how he's healing them, how they're hanging on his every word. Perhaps these Pharisees and these scribes heard that the crowds hoped to crown Jesus king, 
And out of fear of losing their place and their status and their authority, they come to Jesus looking for some issue to exploit in front of the crowds in order to halt the growing influence of Christ. Maybe the Pharisees in these smaller counties and towns called in the heavyweights from Jerusalem because they kept getting bested by Jesus at every turn. Thinking we might not be able to out-debate Jesus, we might not be able to stand against the open and obvious miracles that Jesus is performing among the crowds, but perhaps these more eminent, better trained, and more highly respected Jewish Pharisees, if we could just bring them here, perhaps they'll be able to put him in his place. Whatever the case, here they came on a fault-finding mission. And if the criteria by which to judge the ministry and work of Jesus is the observance and the following of the tradition of the elders, they do not, will not, and won't have to look far or wait long to witness Jesus or his disciples violating those traditions. Why? Because Christ didn't care about them. And if they could catch him violating one of those traditions, perhaps, maybe, they could put the squeeze on Jesus in front of the crowds that respected him so much. And so as they come from Jerusalem, verse 2, it doesn't take long, does it, for these Pharisees from Jerusalem to find what they're looking for. They immediately level the charge against Jesus in verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands before they eat. You see, in the minds of the Pharisees, in the minds of the scribes, and perhaps even the crowds, what they just brought against Jesus is quite a serious charge. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And here it is. These Pharisees do not come to Jesus with any biblical charge. They don't search the pages of Holy Scripture for something to bring against Jesus. No, they immediately turn to the tradition of the elders. It is this setting aside of Scripture, it is this appealing to some alternative man-made authority that is the common denominator, it is the thread that weaves itself through all defective, all deficient, and all outright heretical religious groups. In my many years as a pastor, there have been times when people will come to me and they'll say, you know, I, I, I'm just questioning whether the Bible is actually God's complete, total, authoritative word. Is it inerrant? And when people start battling against that, I always know where they're going to end up in the end. They're going to end up walking away from their profession of faith. Because to get to that place, it's because... We idolize ourselves in some way. We want something. As a youth pastor, I used to remember when kids would say, does God's word really say, is it really that authoritative in my life? And I'd always look to them and say, well, who are you sleeping with? That was usually the reason why all of a sudden they were questioning the authority of God's word because they wanted a sin in their life more than they wanted their Lord or the Lord. But a few examples of this thread of defective, deficient, and outright heretical religion arising out of the rejection of God's word as the sole authority in faith and practice includes such self-proclaimed Christian sects who elevate some extra-biblical organization, tradition, teacher, or writing above God's true and holy word. I'll give three examples. 
The Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, are one example. They look to something called, or the organization called, the Watchtower, and all of its publications, perhaps you've seen them tucked into your door, tucked into your mailbox, perhaps you've heard the knocking on the door and the magazine immediately slapped into your hand, Watchtower and Awake. And they also have a number of other uh, writings, but they see these as their highest authority. The Jehovah's Witnesses have taught for over a century that the Bible cannot be properly understood unless it is studied alongside of the Watchtower literature. However, if one were to put the Bible aside and study only the Watchtower literature, that would be okay. Here's a direct quote written in the Watchtower. We find that people cannot see the divine plan in studying the Bible by itself. But we see also that if anyone lays the scripture studies, that's the Watchtower publications, they lay these scripture studies aside even after he has used them, after he has become familiar with them, after he has read them for 10 years, if he then lays them aside and ignores them and goes to the Bible alone. Though he has understood the Bible for 10 years because taught by uh, Watchtower publications, our experience shows that within two years he goes into darkness. Bible isn't the sole authority, and you cannot understand the Bible without a secondary or even more, more authoritative word. And it's not just the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Mormons are similar. They set the Book of Mormon alongside of God's actual word in Scripture as authoritative. And they make it clear that, and I quote, the Book of Mormon restores plain and precious truths that have been lost from the Bible. When we study the Book of Mormon, our understanding of the doctrines in the Bible are clarified. The Mormons, end quote, the Mormons assert that the Bible as we have it today is the result of, quote, ignorant translators, careless transcribers, or designing and corrupt priests who have committed many errors. Therefore, it is not the primary authority. It is the Mormon literature that is the authority that we need to read in order to properly understand a Bible that has been filled with errors by what they term the abominable church. So you've got Jehovah's Witnesses, you've got Mormons, and you've also got Roman Catholicism as well. Roman Catholicism quite clearly and pointedly made it law in the church at the First Council of Trent in the early 17th century that God's authoritative word is found in a combination of Bible, church tradition, and the magisterium. Bible, church tradition and history, and the system of cardinals and popes. For this reason, they can hold to and teach and practice such biblically unfounded things and doctrines such as praying to the saints, purgatory, relics, works-based salvation, and a host of other violations of God's clearly, clearly written word because tradition and magisterium, even though they go against what Scripture plainly teaches, they defend their use, and so therefore they are permissible in the church. So you see, this temptation to subject God's Word to alternative authorities is all over the place, and it's a thread that weaves itself through false religion. But let's not fool ourselves, let's not kid ourselves into believing that this only happens out there. It also threatens us. It also makes its way into our churches as well. 
It's not uncommon in our own day to hear professing Christians suggest or even demand that we update or revise or adjust or set aside what they deem to be the more outdated and archaic teachings and doctrines and passages of the Bible because they grate against modern cultural sensitivities. They grate against modern cultural customs, values, and beliefs. And what does such a proposal prove? It proves and it indicates that like so many others before and like so many do at this moment, that they hope to subject scriptural truth to some other authority. And in this case, the other authority is cultural authority. The temptation to submit scripture to cultural authority remains a great temptation for each and every one of us. Submitting the teaching of Scripture to cultural authority is common in our lives when we'd rather not follow the Great Commission out of fear for the repercussions that might come to us in our culture. It, re- it reveals to us our greatest idol, ourselves. And isn't it easy, right, even when we go to Scripture, to read Scripture with the lenses of justifying ourselves? Every one of us at certain times has in our lives what the Puritans used to call bosom sins. Those sins that we love. Those sins that we, would lo- we want to hold on to. Those sins that when we read the Bible, we edit those parts that co- correct those sins out and we try to the best of our ability to hold on to them while professing to be a real Christ-loving, God-honoring believer. We must be on guard against such a practice because even that is subjecting God's word to what? To a different authority. Your authority. My authority. And think about how often, for example, we pronounce judgment in the in the church. Or we divide from someone. Or we get angry with a fellow believer because they don't agree with or observe or practice or do some extra biblical thing or expectation that we have of them. Think about the times when we have been like Pharisees from Jerusalem, looking over other people for details in their lives for which to criticize them or to bicker with them. Now, I want to be clear again. We're talking about extra-biblical issues here. Those commands of men that we elevate within the church, within the body of Christ, to points of contention and judgment. In previous years of pastoral ministry, I've seen it over a number of things. Things like preference for taste in music in corporate worship. I've seen it in the style of seating. I'm really glad we have these types of seats, by the way. But I've seen it in other other denominations where, you know, the the King James. If you you don't use the King James, you're not a Christian. There are certain denominations that say if you don't worship on Saturday, you're not a Christian. All of these types of things, fighting over all of these in the church. It might even be our level of engagement with the goings-on in the world right now. Our viewpoints about what's happening in the world, how it's all unfolding, how involved we ought to be or how involved we should not be. And so we argue and we hold on to anger over these things. And I can imagine us, right, like if we put ourselves in this situation that we're reading in Scripture, I could just imagine us going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, why don't you get angry with them for not doing or believing or holding to X, Y, and Z? And Jesus might look at us in response in much the same manner that he did to these Pharisees, point the finger in our chests and say, and why do you break the commandment of 
the commandment that I have set out for you, that you love one another as I have loved you. But for the scribe and the Pharisee coming to Jesus on this day from Jerusalem to challenge him, in order to understand the process by which their subjection of Scripture to the tradition of the elders came to be, we have to kind of go back in time a little bit and do some historical research. We have to go back to the days of the Israelites' return from exile back to Jerusalem. They had been scattered throughout the Babylonian and Persian empires for 70 years. And after that 70-year period, a number of Jews returned to Jerusalem at the decree of King Cyrus in Persia, who, during the first year of his reign, the Lord stirred up his spirit to make this decree, or to make, quote, according to Ezra chapter 1, a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So the Jews went back after 70 years of exile to the land, to, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. After the completion of the temple, a man named Ezra left Babylon for Jerusalem because, as Ezra 7.10 says, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. And Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 says, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So here we see, we're introduced to the first real scribe, Ezra. And he led the people of Israel because as this generation of Israelites returned to Jerusalem after the 70-year exile, they required, they needed a skilled scribe to set God's law before them, to read that law to them, to explain it to them, to help them apply it to these new circumstances in which they found themselves. For the first time in their history, they were a, the people of God in the land of God under foreign rule living beside pagans. And so Ezra, the scribe, led the peoples in the confession of sin, and he called on the Israelites that had married foreign women over those 70 years to separate from them. That was an application of God's law that was unique to this situation, to this new situation. It was this Ezra, the obedient servant of God, the very first scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, who brought before the assembled people the book of God's law, and he read from it, Ezra 8. 1 to 8. From early morning to midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood and listened. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. So now put it all together. You have Ezra the scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, opening the book of the law to help the people of Israel understand and apply that law to their new circumstances. And so you see the role of scribes started oh so well. Ezra is a great and godly man. However, the scribes and rabbis after Ezra, over time, began to add all sorts of regulation, new regulations and applications and explanations to God's word. 
These scribal words, teachings and explanations, they grew and they grew and they expanded and they expanded with each passing generation as scribes and rabbis for the next few centuries debated and discussed and passed their conclusions on to the next generation as authoritative. After Christ's earthly ministry, about 200 years after Christ's earthly ministry, all of these sayings and teachings from that point to the 3rd century A.D., uh, from all the different rabbis and scribes from post-Ezra to that time, they were all collected and written down by a rabbi named Judah Hanasi. This writing down or collection of rabbinic and scribal rulings is what we call today the Talmud. Perhaps you've heard of this work, the Talmud. You can read in the Talmud the commentary, the explanations, the applications, the discussions, and the traditions that were set forth by the rabbis as they delved into the morals, the rituals, the customs, and pretty much every single aspect of Jewish life for those centuries. So the Talmud actually consists of um, something called the Mishnah. That's this right here. I've got this. I don't have the Talmud, but I've got this. This is the oral commentary on an application of the 613 laws in the Old Testament. The Talmud also consists of something called the Gemara, which is still more commentary on this commentary, plus more commentary on the commentary of this commentary. There are two versions of the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud, and if you put them together, they fit nicely and neatly into 50 large volumes. The Talmud records the efforts of the rabbis to guard and to put barriers around the law to ensure that the laws weren't broken. But the problem with the Talmud and all of these laws is that in trying to put guards around the actual biblical laws, they ended up violating those laws and misrepresenting those laws all throughout the work. So for example, in Exodus chapter 23, verse 19, we read this extremely clear statement. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. We all get why that's there, right? I'm just kidding. We don't. Laws like this actually confuse the modern reader. For the most part, we really have no clue what to do with them, right? But as you read the Old Testament, you will note how seriously the Lord took Israel's distinction as a nation, their separation unto Him as His chosen people. Over and over and over again, we read the commands of God for the Israelites to keep from joining in and with the practices of the surrounding idolatrous nations. And so the Lord instituted law after law after law to remind them of their separation and their distinction as the people of God from the surrounding nations. Laws like, do not plant your fields with two types of crops. Do not make shirts made of two different fabrics. Each of these was a visual, ever-present reminder to the Israelites that they were separate and distinct and not to mingle with or take part in the idolatries of the Canaanites around them. Boiling a goat in its mother's milk was yet another idolatrous practice of the Canaanites. They performed this ritual believing that it promoted fertility. But as we know, it's the Lord who rules over the womb. It's the Lord who rules over man's seed. And so the Lord forbade Israel's practice of this religious act. But the rabbis took this verse, and instead of actually speaking to the, the, the foundation for it, which is do not... Uh, take part in idolatry they ruled 
in the Talmud that eating some goat meat and then taking a swig of milk violates the law of God. Because, though it's a slim, there is a chance that the goat milk that you drink and the meat that you eat might have come from a mother and child goat combination. And to have both of those in your stomach at the same time meant that you were boiling a goat in its mother's milk. And so the Lord... Uh, where did I go here? I lost my place. Oh, it meant that you boiled a goat in its mother's milk if you had the two things in your stomach at the same time. Which is completely not what the law is designed to deal with. The Talmud also, when you think about the Sabbath, throughout the ministry of Jesus, you'll notice that there's a lot of Sabbath uh, rules and violations that the Pharisees claim Jesus breaks. Because in the Talmud, they put 1,500, 1,500 extra laws around the Sabbath. Now, over time, a switch occurred as these commentaries from the Talmud and the Mishnah overtook or took over from Scripture the role of highest authority in the Jewish religion. The Talmud itself actually teaches that when God spoke the law to Moses from Sinai, he told Moses to pass that law on to the best, the brightest, the smartest men in Israel. And according to the Talmud again, three things happened when Moses did pass this law on to the smartest men in Israel. They were to ensure that three things took place. First, they were to devote themselves to considering, deliberating upon, and teaching the proper application of God's law to God's people. Second, they were to disciple new scribes so that future generations might always have among them teachers trained in the law. And third, they were to put safeguards around the law to make sure that it was always protected so that if an if a Israelite broke one of those fences or one of those guards around the law that they hadn't broken the actual law. But as time went on, those man-made safeguards that these uh, scribes had put around the law became authoritative and even more authoritative than God's specific words themselves. You see what happens when the law of God is put in the hands of scribes lesser of lesser quality than Ezra. Ezra was a man whose heart was fully devoted to the Lord, but as those who weren't of his quality took the role of leading the people, they increasingly buried and obscured by adding more and more regulations and ceremonies and practices and rituals, the word of God, so that by the time Jesus arrived in the flesh, the people knew more about the rabbinic interpretations of the law than God's actual law itself. You hear this in the New Testament, all right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus repeatedly declared, you have heard it said, meaning... The rabbis have said this, but let me clarify what God's word actually teaches, right? So that's what that means. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And what had the people heard said? Rabbinic interpretations of the law. That by this time had only served to blind people to the truth of God's word rather than explain it. And if you want to know just how authoritative the Talmud was in the life of the Israelites and the Pharisees at the time of Jesus when these Pharisees came to Jesus and accused him of breaking the tradition of the elders. Let me give you some quotes from the Talmud that speak about how authoritative it believes itself to be. And I quote, My son, be more careful 
in the observance of the words of the scribes than in the words of the Torah, or the Old Testament. End quote. And, and I quote, the teachings of the Talmud stand above all other laws. They are more important than the laws of Moses. And again, just to make it crystal clear, the decisions of the Talmud are the words of the living God. God, asks him, God himself asks the opinions of the earthly rabbis when there are difficult affairs in heaven. Again, Yahweh himself studies the Talmud standing because he has such respect for that book. And in this one, those are from the Gemara section. This is the Mishnah section. Here it says, Greater stringency applies to the observance of the words of the scribes than to the observance of the words of the written law. If a man said, There is no obligation to wear phylacteries so that he transgresses the words of the law, he is not culpable. But if he said... There should be in them five partitions so that he adds to the words of the scribes, he is culpable. So that you can violate God's word and the Mishnah tells you you're not culpable for that, but if you violate or question the word of the scribes, then guilt comes upon you. This is what the scribes and the rabbis that came after Ezra did to the perfect law of God. They took his law, a word aimed at inspiring and calling people to true heart devotion and love to and for the God who saved them and delivered them and called them to his service, who called this people to be his treasured possession among all the peoples. They took this word of God that commanded the people to hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. But instead of loving the Lord with all their heart, they transformed God's law into a superficial, externally focused system of rituals, deeds, and forms that could be kept without any real heart involvement. And by the time of Jesus, this tradition of the elders, these teachings, rules, and applications that had been handed down by the scribes and the rabbis had become the authority among the scribes and the Pharisees. They had overtaken even the clearest and most direct commands in Scripture. And so as the Pharisees from Jerusalem came to Jesus, they charged him with what in their mind constituted one of the gravest and most serious of allegations. Also, just on a side note, this really was, at the same time, the only thing they could charge Jesus with, right? Because as we know, Jesus never, ever violated any Old Testament law. As Messiah, Jesus, God come, himself come to us in the flesh, he, kept, he both kept and fulfilled the entirety of God's law. Every single moral command, every single ceremonial command, every single priestly command, every single command. And by so doing, he secured for us the perfect righteousness that we require if we are to be righteous in the sight of God, if we are to be acceptable to God. 
If you here today are not in a right relationship with the Lord and you would want to be brought into a right relationship with Him, it can only come about by trusting in, by believing in, by putting your faith in Christ who lived this perfect life and who died an atoning, sin-bearing death. Because His death on the cross is sufficient to pay the penalty required for your sin. And His perfect life is credited to you upon belief so that when God sees you, He sees a forgiven person who is righteous, clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. But back to our narrative. These Pharisees could have chosen any number of broken traditions with which to, choose, to, to accuse Jesus. Because as we will see, again, Christ put no stock. He placed absolutely zero value on the traditions of the elders. But the Pharisees come and they choose ritual hand-washing. That's, the, that's what they accuse or charge Jesus with. Ritual hand-washing. An act connected to the food laws of Leviticus 11. Now this is important. Because when you read the New Testament, have you ever noticed in your reading of the New Testament just how difficult it was even for the Jewish Christians, to relax these dietary laws. They had to hold councils and deliberate about Gentiles breaking these food laws. Even apostles like Peter who trusted Jesus had to be convinced by the Lord himself in a vision that he could now eat foods that were up to this point forbidden to them. And one of the reasons why these food laws held such a primary place in Israel, apart from the fact that it's spoken of in Leviticus 11, was their importance to Israel's identity or maintaining Israel's identity throughout the exile. You see, the food laws held the nation of Israel together as they were scattered throughout Babylon. The clean and the unclean food laws were foundational for both expressing and holding on to their distinction as a people while in exile. And the observance of the food laws among the Israelites actually over time became the distinguishing mark of a faithful Jew, continually reminding them of their separation unto God as his special chosen people. And for this reason, the rabbis guarded these laws with a special and particular ferocity. They shielded these laws by posting guards around them, one of which we see in Acts 15 too, the washing of hands before every single meal. There were certain times in the Old Testament when ceremonial hand washing was called for. Leviticus 15.11, for example, reads like this. Anyone whom the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the morning. And other times, Israelites were told to ceremonially wash their garments, to wash their bodies, to rinse away uncleanness and defilements. However, nowhere in Scripture is anyone commanded to wash their hands before every meal as a rule of holiness and acceptability before the Lord. This is an invention of the rabbis. This is an invention of the elders. It came about over time, again, as script, the scribes and the rabbis explained and commented on and prescribed applications of the different washing and rinsing texts throughout the Old Testament. 
And they concluded that it was necessary for an obedient, observant Jew to ceremonially wash their hands before eating. And so when these Pharisees come from Jerusalem, committed to such traditions as they were, and ensuring that the people of Israel observed this rule, they brought it immediately to the attention of Jesus. The only problem is that while they were so completely concerned with and focused on this extra-biblical man-made tradition, they were not committed to the clear, direct word and commands of God. And so as they come to Jesus and they ask him, why do your disciples not wash their hand? What's Jesus' response? He doesn't even dignify it. He completely sidesteps their question. As if to say, yes, my disciples do break the tradition of the elders because the tradition of the elders means absolutely nothing. What does mean something, however, is God's actual word, which for the sake of your tradition, you consistently violate, you consistently break, you consistently disobey. See what Jesus said in 15, 3-4. Here's an example. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. In other words, Jesus here is revealing to them or showing them that there is no command in scripture anywhere regarding your tradition of ceremonial hand washing before meals. And yet, even so, even though there is no clear word of God commanding this, you make it a primary issue and you assert it as an authoritative and binding command, judging and condemning people who do not follow it. You take a man-made tradition formed over time as scribes and debated and discussed the subject and you call everyone out who disobeys. But you, Pharisees, you expressly disobey the clear and direct command of God in His Word. No tradition, no matter what it is, supersedes or even stands alongside God's Word in terms of its authority. And here is one clear example of your... This is, you imagine Jesus saying this, right? Here is an example of your egregious disobedience to the Word of God. God commanded, honor your father and your mother. Now that's set out for us at least twice in the clearest of terms in both um, of the repeats of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, we read it, Honor your father and your mother, that, in, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And again in Deuteronomy 5.16, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That is as clear as it gets, right? To honor one's parents included obedience to them while you're young, esteeming and highly regarding them at all points of your life, caring for them in their old age. To honor one's parents meant to do so in thought, in word, and in act. And so Jesus continued, God commanded, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Again, another clear command of God repeated a number of times throughout the Old Testament. The penalty for dishonoring parents is the death of the child. Exodus 21.15 Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. 
Exodus 21, 17, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. Leviticus 20, verse 9, anyone who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. Deuteronomy 21, 18 and a forward. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of the city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey his, our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. Then you shall purge, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. So you see how Jesus referred to these commands? Jesus makes it clear. These are the commandments of God. You see, Jesus understood the Old Testament to be the very word of God. So that when he says that God commanded, when he, when he reiterates the uh, honor your father and mother, he says, why do you break the commandment of God? For God commanded. The Old Testament is the very word of God. And in that word, the command of God is to honor one's father and mother. And there were penalties that were associated with the dishonoring of your parents. And they were extremely, supremely clear and unmistakable. At this point, to revile, speak evil of, verbally abuse, insult, or disobey, or not provide for your parents in their old age was an absolute disgrace and liable to the death penalty. So, let's now step back and contrast. When the scripture is unclear about a certain thing, the Pharisees made it authoritative and binding. When the scripture was crystal clear about a thing, what did they do with that? What did the elders do with such a clear command of God? We see in verses 5 and 6. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Meaning, you say and you teach something directly opposed to the Word of God. You choose to live by your own words and traditions over God's words. You set God's Word aside in favor of your traditions. And how do you do this? By using tradition to evade a clear command of God. Mark, the, Mark's Gospel actually uses the term korban here to describe this practice of telling parents that what you would have gained from me is now given to God. This tradition of Korban was nothing more than a way for Jewish people, for religious leaders, to skirt, to evade, and to disobey the direct command of God, and yet still, at the same time, profess to be obedient to the Lord. It's such a cagey and duplicitous game that they, and sometimes we play, isn't it? For the Pharisee, if things got tough, if the parents came and needed help, they came to their son requesting assistance, whether it is in the form of the food, a form of food or clothing or lodging or money. The commandment of God to honor your parents meant that you were to help them. But if this Pharisee didn't really want to help, if they didn't want to part with their resources or give their money or open their home, if they didn't want their parents to be a drain on their quality of life, then the tradition of the elders created for them a loophole, this rule of Korban. So that when 
a parent came asking, the person could say, Korban! Meaning, my estate is now pledged to the temple and consecrated to the Lord's service. And by so doing, the parents couldn't touch any of it. Because something consecrated to God's service, as something consecrated to God's service, those resources were now considered holy and not to be used by the common person. In fact, calling their things consecrated to the Lord meant that the Pharisees were actually bound by law to hold them back from their parents. Mark actually records it like this. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. And the Talmud has a lot to say about this issue of Korban. The Talmud says that even if a person did dedicate their belongings to the Lord, they weren't actually bound by their word to give those resources to the temple. This is how, this is how nuts it all got. You could instead keep them and use them. And if you so desired, you could even revoke that gift. And if your parents heard that you would revoke the gift and they came knocking again, you could cry out, Korban again! To keep your stuff out of your parents' hands. And if you did cry out, Korban, uh, you, could, you could keep all of that until you died. Meaning, you go on living your normal lifestyle, enjoying your quality of life, no sacrifice to you, until you die. But even then, you could, if they could, before they died, pass off their estates to someone else if they so chose. Isn't, isn't this just hypocrisy 101, duplicity? And Jesus called the Pharisees out on this because it was one of their most dishonest and most fraudulent practices. This loophole instituted by the Pharisees who wanted to look spiritual in their use of high-sounding mumbo-jumbo when in reality, internally, they were simply money-loving hypocrites. And it was these types of commandments being, of men being taught as doctrines that allowed for such travesties to occur. Even as the clear word of God stared them right in the face, you were to honor your father and your mother. Oh, yep, I will do that. Korban. And that's exactly what Jesus said to them. In verse 7, you hypocrites. You absolute hypocrites. Meaning, you actors, you pretenders, you group of two faces, you don't really love God. Nor do you actually care about serving God or obeying Him. You are all about the external show, but possess no love for Him in your heart. You know how to talk religion with the best. But you don't love God. You can pretend to be holy with the best. But in reality, you are simply wicked and immoral right down to the core. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you. See that in verse 7? Meaning that while Isaiah was speaking to the religious leaders of his own day, the words that he spoke to them 800 years ago still ring true for you today. They are still relevant to the scribes and the Pharisees standing before Jesus on that day. They describe them to a T. The Pharisees might think they have changed. They might think that they are more holy. They might think that they are God's favorites. But if Isaiah were here, he would denounce them in the same way that he denounced the religious leaders in his own, or the Israelites in his own day. Well did Pro Isaiah prophesy of you when he said... This people honors me with their lips, 
but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This hypocritical religion of the Pharisees, this loophole religion, this religion of elevating traditions into authoritative and and trying to evade the clear commands of God, Jesus said here, it's vain. It's a vain worship. Meaning, it's not acceptable to God, nor is it profitable to them. These Pharisees worshipped Him in vain because they neglected God's Word and in its place put their own system of rules and regulations by which they judge themselves and they judge others. And listen, again, you and I have to be on guard against this. We have to be on guard against this holding others to our specific set of extra-biblical rules, regulations, and expectations. Because each and every one of us sets for ourselves some degree of measuring our success and our failure as a Christian, right? But that degree of measuring ought to be solely based in Scripture. We must guard against hoping in any of these external rituals that we might set for ourselves because such a system always proves vain and unprofitable. Know this. Any rules and regulations or preferences or opinions or uh, expectations you set for yourselves and then put on somebody else, they're always bent in your favor. You ever notice that? It'll always be something you already believe. It'll It'll always be something you already do or already find easy to practice. This is how deceptive our hearts can be. For the scribes and Pharisees, simply turning to Scripture, studying it, obeying it, and applying it was too hard. It was too difficult. And that still rings true for us. Turning to God's Word to study it, obey it, and apply it is difficult. Why? Because as you read God's Word, you realize God demands everything. He demands your whole life. He demands your heart your repentance, your faith, your trust. He demands that we live for Christ as set out by the Word of God. He demands the denial of ourselves, that we take up our cross daily to follow Him, to recognize that we are not our own, but we're bought by Christ for a price, and therefore our, with our bodies we serve Him. We are commanded in Scripture to make war against our sin, to put our sin to death. This is a battle that you and I will fight on multiple fronts every single day of our lives. We are called to love God above all else, to forgive others as we have been forgiven, to be generous, to refrain from vengeance, to pray for our enemies, to do good to those who persecute us to overcome evil with good, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to resist the devil and his schemes, to humble ourselves before God and to recognize that we will most likely face some degree of hatred, persecution, and hardship in this life because we are followers of Christ. And the Jews and the Pharisees and the scribes recognized that this is impossible stuff. This is all, these are all commands that call for heart change. They call for breaking up the fallow ground. They call for real difficult work, a work that humbles us. 
Because as you live these out, you and I both know we fail over and over and over and over again. To try and live according to God's Word is a truly humbling experience. In all of this, we are brought to the recognition that we cannot do it on our own. But we must rely on God each minute of every day, repenting and confessing our sin with full knowledge that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. But for the Pharisees and the scribes, this just will not do. This idea of humbling yourself, of submitting yourself, of making war against sin, this just will not do. And so the Talmud found ways to ensure that there were loopholes in all of these. Loopholes, self-created loopholes by which to justify themselves in their disobedience and still pass themselves off as spiritual men. Is this something you do? We don't know what goes on in the privacy of your own home. We don't know how spouses talk to each other. We don't know what you do in the darkness of rooms in your house late at night. I don't know if you steal or you lie or you cheat. But are you one that somehow, some way, finds ways to evade and to justify yourself in those things, and then you come to church and you sit in the chairs and you act all high and mighty and religious and spiritual and present yourself really well. That's the Pharisee's religion. You must repent of that type of attitude. What God calls us to is full submission to Him. We find this so difficult because we love ourselves so much. And so it'll always be a temptation to you and I to pass ourselves off as more spiritual than we actually are. It'll always be a temptation to justify those sins that we appreciate and love to keep and hold on to. We can be just like Pharisees, can't we? If you want an easy religion, then create for yourself a set of extra-biblical rules and traditions and use them. Not Scripture, but use them to judge your standing before God. That's easy. We can all do that. We can all create a system of legalism where we, coming, where we come out of it looking wonderful to ourselves. We can even take it a step further and make ourselves feel even better by imposing them on other people and then when they fail, we feel better about ourselves. There's only one problem, though. Scripture remains true, unbroken, and authoritative. And while you might feel good about your supposed righteousness before God, you and I are still nothing more than wretches apart from Christ. If you are relying on your own standard of morality and righteousness to secure you favor with God, then you are following the religion of the Pharisees and not obeying the call of Christ. If you want to be acceptable to God, forgiven by Him, and righteous in His sight, then you must repent of your sin believe in Christ, and believe in Christ. Anything else is simply paving your way to eternal damnation. So in closing, listen. We know that we can never be perfect, right? Nor can we ever perfectly obey Christ in this life. Instead, many times... 
If you're anything like me, I know the good I ought to do, and I want to do it, but I repeatedly end up doing the thing I didn't want to do, the bad I didn't want to do instead. And in all of this, you and I ought to look to the Lord, to confess that to Him, to worship Him, to praise Him, to depend on His grace and His mercy and His love, to hope in His faithfulness and His power to keep us who truly believe in Christ. To set these biblical realities aside in favor of crafting some sort of external rules and traditions by which to justify yourselves and others is both wicked and vain. It is not acceptable to God and it is unprofitable to you. Instead, turn to God's Word. God's Word is our sole authority. Take it up and read. Believe everything that it declares. Everything, obey everything God commands therein without hypocrisy, without evasion, without double-mindedness, without duplicity, and do so for the glory and the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you and we praise you. We praise you, Lord, that you have given us your word. It is a precious and treasured gift. Because apart from your word, we'd have no idea how to be saved. We'd have no idea about the cross of Christ and the promises that you have set out for us. And so we praise you for moving men along by your Holy Spirit and inspiring them to write your very words down for us. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us in our efforts not, to not justify ourselves, to not evade your word, but to recognize that our greatest delight and joy is found in obedience to your word. So if there's any sin that we are holding on to and hiding, any sin that we love and we're trying to justify, any sin that we're, we're keeping in the dark so that no one else sees while we present ourselves as super spiritual in the sight of others, I pray that you would bring us to our knees for those things and that you would call us back to our first love, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we serve Christ, we would, just, we would open up his word and obey it in the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.